Good morning, First Family Church. I wish I could see your smiling faces here today, but uh, thankfully at least we have the internet by which we can reach out to one another and share God's word together. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul's words to the Corinthian church last week as we studied in chapter 5, where he assured them though he could not be near to them in body, that he was nonetheless present with them in spirit. So let us as a church consider how we might be present with one another in spirit, even though our fellowship is somewhat hindered right now. We don't want to neglect uh, the saints. We want to make sure that we're caring about one another, that we're paying special attention to each other, whether that means uh, reaching out to people through text message or phone calls, emails, or whatever kind of FaceTime that we can do to try to stay connected. We want to make sure that people are cared for and loved. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to get back together in, in person as a church here soon. But in the meantime, we have decided out of an abundance of caution uh, to meet virtually for a couple of weeks to give our staff a chance to recover from the things that are ailing them. So just some some updates on how we're feeling. Pastor Paul is improving, still dealing with some fatigue and a lingering cough, but he's doing a lot better. And the rest of the Abedas seem to be doing very well. Um, I'm recovered from what I had. Uh, Some of my kids have gotten sick, but it didn't didn't stick very long with them. Missy is still battling what she was dealing with. Um, Please be praying for her. She'll feel 100%. uh, But generally, the Neves family is trending towards good health. Uh, When we started feeling sick a couple of weeks ago on a Tuesday, we immediately treated it as though it was worst-case scenario, as though it was COVID. We began to isolate ourselves and keep away from people, so we've had very little contact with anybody which is a good thing, because if you were all here today, I might be able to see you, but I wouldn't be able to smell you. Uh, Our family lost their sense of smell uh, at the beginning of this week, which is sometimes the last symptom to pop up. So we're pretty certain that we have had COVID and that we're battling back from it. Uh, No respiratory issues. We're all breathing great, but thank you for praying for us. Uh, We're not the last family in the church that's going to have to deal with this. So let's continue to pray that God will get us through that His will will be done, and that we will not be afraid of this or struggling against it too badly, but that with uh, the help of God, we'll be able to conquer any obstacle that He puts in our path. But since we are separated from each other, we want to make sure that we take some time here. Uh, Normally, we would have had a pastoral prayer at the beginning of the service, and we want to do that now before we get into the time of uh, learning together in God's Word. So let's bow our heads and take a moment to ask God's blessing over what we're going to learn today. Our gracious God, we love you. We adore you, God, because there is no one like you. Everything that exists, exists because you have willed it to exist. All things have been created by your hand and are sustained by your life-giving power. And so we praise you, Lord God, that this reality that we live in is your reality. It is properly owned by you and governed by you. And Father, though we can see the effects of our sin, we can see the hardship that comes upon man, when we ignore your law, when we don't treat you like the God that you are, nonetheless, we do confess and proclaim with great hope today that you are still sovereign over all things, that nothing happens outside of your guiding hand and your declarative will. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would continue to shape us, continue to provide for us, your people. We thank you, God, for the salvation that is ours in Christ. We are grateful, God, to be redeemed by his power and by his blood. We are grateful for the hope that comes with seeing him resurrected. Lord, knowing that our bodies, while fragile, while susceptible still to death, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, death really has no sting. It has no power over us. And so we pray, God, and look forward to the day when we will receive new bodies that will be fit for eternal worship, ready to worship you for all days. We pray, Lord God, in the meantime, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would give us encouragement and relief that we might find rest in you, Lord God. We pray specifically for those in our fellowship who are struggling with sickness right now. God, please completely heal Paul, help his family to not get sick. I pray for my own family that you would bless my wife, that she might make a full recovery. We pray for Liz Stahl, who is still battling COVID right now, along with pneumonia and bronchitis. She's in the hospital, God, and we pray that she'll be able to come back home again soon. We thank you for the good surgery that our brother Sean had and ask, Lord God, that in your mercy you might allow the chemotherapy that he's about to begin to go smoothly and to not have too adverse of an effect on his well-being, God. So please be merciful to him. We thank you, Father God, for Christine and ask that 
her recovery from her surgery would, uh, would go better, Lord. She's been struggling in health, so please help her blood sugars to be stable and, and help her, God, uh, to feel uh, 100% again soon. Father, uh, for all those who are aching or for those who are having a hard time with their breathing or, or dealing with issues that maybe we haven't even been made aware of yet, I pray that you would continue to be that, that blessed hand that keeps them. We thank you when you answer our prayers with healing or with uh, good news. For instance, with Vicki not having anything seriously wrong this week after a scare with her, her intestines. We thank you for that, God, but we also thank you when things don't turn out exactly how we expect them to or hope them to. So God, through all things, we proclaim you to be good. Uh, we bless you when you take. We bless you when you give. So help us, God, to have hearts that are full of gratitude for your grace and for all that you have done to provide for your, your children. Help ministry to continue going on, Lord God, even though we have not been able to gather in person. I pray, Father, that you would give us special occasions to minister to our neighbors and the people into whom we come in contact with. I pray, God, that you would let us be bold about preaching the truth. What better time to show the light than in times of deep, deep darkness. And so I pray, Lord God, that your people would be on mission for you regardless of the circumstances. And I ask, Father, that in your mercy you'd allow us to gather again soon that your name might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Be with the missionaries who are in the field right now and dealing with various governments. I pray, God, that you would bless those who are training to be elders in your church. Raise up godly men that your church might be led with those who have a courage that is founded not in their own abilities, God, but in all that you have provided for us in your holy and perfect word. God, as we enter into 1 Corinthians 5 today, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we thank you, Lord God, that we don't have to figure out what is right and what is wrong on our own sensibilities, Lord God, or based on our opinions. Your word tells us plainly what we are to do. If we would only honor you enough to put our own ideas and creativities aside and simply worship you as you have commanded us to worship you, you are a good God and you will not lead us in the wrong direction. So we have hope in you. We have rest in you. We have joy in you. May your word spark that joy today as we enjoy the the preaching of your Holy Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, so please take your Bibles and find your place there. Today is a very good example of why the primary mode of preaching at First Family Church is expositional. That means that we typically like to take a book of the Bible and just simply preach straight through the book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We like to tell you what the Word says from beginning to end. Not everyone does that. Others choose to pick a particular topic or idea and develop that topic, hopefully using a lot of scriptures that speak to that issue or that idea. And uh, that's not particularly wrong. Uh, we do that from time to time. Um, just recently in December, we preached on the human and the divine natures of Jesus. And that was useful to be able to spend some time surveying the scripture to see what it had to say about such an important idea. But our primary approach to preaching is and will continue to be just simply taking a book of the Bible and working our way through it. Now, there's some really great advantages to that approach. Uh, one of those advantages is you don't have to count on the creativity of your preacher to come up with catchy and novel ideas about what to preach on each week. You simply listen to what the Lord has given to us in His Holy Word, His Word provides for us what we need. And so uh, I don't have to let you down with my creativity. I simply get to show you what Christ has shown us over the ages, and that will never disappoint. But one of the most important advantages to expositional preaching, just preaching through the Word of God, is this. It makes you look at the whole counsel of God's good Word. When you preach from beginning to end, book by book, you don't have the luxury of preaching only the kind of stuff that people want to hear. You don't have the convenience of only preaching on passages of Scripture that you're already really solidly grounded in, that you don't have any real questions about, that you've figured out already. You don't have the luxury of conveniently avoiding the difficult texts of Scripture. You have to deal with them when you come to them. You have to make sense of them and meditate on them. You have to determine how to live obediently to them. So chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians is a great example of a chapter that many churches in our modern times would just assume avoid indefinitely 
because it deals with something that so few churches are actually being faithful about. Chapter 5 deals with church discipline. Now, why would churches want to avoid speaking about church discipline? There's a multitude of reasons. It's hard to be confrontational about sin. Let's just admit it up front. It's especially hard when, when we have the right perspective on ourselves that we as leaders in the church are also sinners who deal with our own depravity, who deal with our own shortcomings and lack of wisdom. So it is humbling for sinners to have to go to other sinners and point out flaws in their lives and encourage them to be strong in obedience to God's word. There has been such an emphasis also in our culture and in modern times, especially in the American church, on church growth, on seeing more and more people enter into God's house to worship him, that the potential to upset people is seen as a threat to church growth. And so a lot of churches won't deal with church discipline because they're afraid it's going to keep the church from growing. It's going to make people upset or make them feel unwelcome or judged. And so they would rather have a full church than a healthy church. We have in some ways let the world redefine what it means to love. And so now we are so infected by pagan ideas that love, the epitome of love, is not truth necessarily, but what makes a person feel good, that we have seen tolerance and freedom as more important than the truth of God. And that is a tragedy, friends. If we deal with sin, and I know that I myself am battling sin, we also have to realize that we might have to eventually deal with our leaders. Our leaders might have to deal with sin as well. When we point out sin and and call sin what it is, then it means that we too will also be open to judgment. And so it makes us more accountable and more responsible. And that's why some preachers really shy away from preaching on church discipline or putting it into practice in their churches. And then again, one more reason is that people in the church today often just don't understand grace. They think that grace, God's willingness to forgive radically again and again and again. They believe that grace is a license to act however you want to act, to not have to care about the law of God. Now, surely, our church preaches the truth of Scripture, which is that in no way, shape, or form does the law save us. In no way, shape, or form do we earn our salvation. It is all of the grace of God. But the grace of God does not make a mockery of the truth of God. The law of God is still good, if it is used properly, if it is applied in the ways that it ought to be applied, and always under the gratefulness of grace. So, are we tackling this passage today in 1 Corinthians 5 because there's something going on at church that you don't know about yet, and so we're trying to address it kind of uh, from the pulpit. No, that's not what's happening here. We're simply teaching the full counsel of the Word of God. And we trust that the Word of God gives the church exactly what she needs. It provides our daily bread so that we might be strong, so that we might be healthy. The church needs to be strong in its understanding of how the church must remain pure in a world especially that is saturated with sin and rebellion. So if you've got your Bibles open, we are reading three verses today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5, and we're going to be studying verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul addresses his brothers and sisters in Corinth and says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul starts this passage by addressing an attitude among the Corinthians. Your boasting is not good, he says. Have you been tracing this attitude problem as we've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians? We see it in every single chapter of this letter so far. In the first chapter, the very last verse, he says, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. See, these Corinthians were boasting in the wrong things. They were boasting in their affiliations. They were boasting in their own wisdoms. 
They were not boasting in the one thing that we should be boasting in, which is Jesus Christ. The second chapter continues this confrontation of the Corinthians' arrogance. He warned them not to rest their faith in the wisdom of men in chapter 2, verse 5. They were to rest their strength instead, their faith, in the power of God. They were proud about their leadership affiliations, and it was causing divisions among them. And Paul is trying to root out this issue so that the church might again be united. But in order for that unity to happen, their arrogance has got to be put to the side. Chapter 3, verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And just a couple of verses later, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So, based on the fact that we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and that we now belong to the kingdom of heaven, our arrogance should be exposed as an errand of a fool, as as a fool's errand. It is not worth our time to think highly of ourselves when we have been humbled enough to see our sin and shown that the only solution to that sin is Jesus Christ. In verse 18 of chapter 4, he addresses this in a very confrontational way. He says, Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. He's addressing the particular sins of immorality that are beginning to pop up in the congregation at Corinth. And he's dealing with the fact that many of the Corinthians have not responded to previous letters that he has written, urging them to repent. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, we read just recently, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn, dealing with their sin, having been confronted with the fact that there is one among them who is sinning in a way that even the pagans don't sin, should they not mourn over that reality, but instead their arrogance has got them proud of themselves, whether it's for tolerating that sin or whether it is uh, for the fact that uh, they, they are free as Corinthians to be and act as they think they want to be able to think and act. All of these things show us the arrogance of the Corinthians and how it was a real problem in their fellowship. And it was in some ways inoculating them against the very wisdom that would do them good, the wisdom that Paul is trying to give. They were stubborn, and they had not listened to Paul's warning about taking sin lightly in their congregation. Rather than boasting in Christ as they should, they were boasting in a variety of things that were not justifying their arrogance. The specific teacher that they associated themselves with was a, a, a sense of pride among them. Some identified with Apollos, the great and beautiful speaker, the man who, who is, who's gifted in preaching and communicating the Word of God. Some associated with Peter, that one who was grounded in the Old Testament truths and who had walked with Jesus himself. Some associated themselves with Paul, uh, th- this great apostle who planted churches mightily and was an evangelist uh, without equal. And so there pride in who they associated with was causing divisions and was leading to more sin among them. Their tolerance and their freedom was also another point of their boasting. They were too proud of their inclusiveness to follow Paul's instructions and actually do something about the sin that existed among their people. This arrogance has acted as a breach in their spiritual defense. It's allowed worldly behavior to seep back into their everyday practice They were beginning to look more like the Gentiles they used to be, unsaved and unaware of the things of heaven, instead of the saved individuals, the true Israel that they have been made to be. And Paul is trying to help them see the danger of that. So to illustrate the situation, the apostle leans on an Old Testament metaphor. Now, any Jewish believer would be familiar with this symbol, but remember, the majority of the people in the Corinthian church were not Jews who had converted to Christianity. Most of them were pagans who did not have a background in the Old Testament. And yet Paul here is confident that even though their background is not Jewish, that they'll be able to grab onto this. I think this tells us something about how familiar we should be with the Old Testament. Paul expects us to care about the Old Covenant because it sets things up for us. It gives us shadows and types, and it trains us how to understand better the fulfillment of the promises that we see in the New Testament covenant. So Paul is going to speak here of bread, more specifically how bread is made and how certain processes in the preparation of the dough 
that makes the bread affects how it behaves and what kind of bread is produced. There is unleavened bread, which does not have yeast in it. When it is baked, it remains relatively flat and quite dense. There is also leavened bread, which does have a form of yeast in it. When prepared, it begins to rise, and upon baking the bread, that rising increases. The presence of leaven causes the loaf to swell in the oven. It fills with pockets of air, and the bread turns out more fluffy and light. When we take communion as believers, we use unleavened bread. We do that for two reasons. First, Jesus used unleavened bread when he instituted the sacrament of communion the night before he was betrayed and went to the cross. Luke 22, 7 through 8. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat of it. So when he was gathering these men together, he didn't say, I've got a brand new sacrament for you. He took a sacrament that existed in the order of Jewish worship already, and he gave new meaning to it. But he was using the elements of that old sacrament. So in preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and particularly the Passover meal, which was the highlight of that festival, the Jews would remove all of the leaven from their homes. They did this in accordance with Exodus chapter 12, uh, which is a chapter describing the first Passover, right before the Lord God, through the workings of Moses, removed his people Israel from the slavery under which they had been for 430 years in the land of Egypt. Remembering what, uh, that when God miraculously freed them from that slavery, he had told them that there would be no time for leavened bread to rise. God had instructed them to make only unleavened bread so that they would have something to eat on that journey that was coming up quite quickly. The Passover feast celebrated that rescue where Israel was brought out of Egyptian slavery and into a new freedom where many of the covenant promises that had been made to them would be fulfilled, at least in part. So that's the first reason that, uh, that we use unleavened bread during the sacrament of communion. The second reason is that leaven coincides with an Old Testament illustration about how sin can act in the same way that yeast acts on a loaf of bread or on a, a lump of dough. A little yeast, when added to a large lump of dough, will leaven the whole lump. Its presence has a catalyzing effect, which changes the properties of the whole mass of dough. Do you see the parallel to Paul's warning about sin? Just as a little yeast will spread through the whole lump of dough, so too will a little sin, if it is left unaddressed, if it is not confronted, has the potential to catalyze sin within the whole body of believers. Jesus described how the unleavened bread that he used in the first communion was symbolic of his own body, which would soon be offered up as a pure sacrifice for the sins of God's people. Jesus' body was sinless. It was untainted by iniquity. So unleavened bread, which is untouched by yeast, was a fitting symbol in that regard. But there is an important nuance to this metaphor that has the power to really help us understand Paul's use of it here in the Corinthians letter. How many of you have made Amish friendship bread from a starter? That was kind of a big deal. A couple years back, I remember that we had Amish friendship bread starters going throughout the church, and people would make a loaf and give it to somebody along with a little starter, and then they were to take that starter and, and make a loaf for somebody else and then give them a starter, and it kind of snowballs into a, kind of a a domino effect of generosity, and also carbohydrates. So uh, I love Amish friendship bread. It's very sweet. It's very good. When you make a starter for this kind of bread, you take some yeast, some water, some sugar, some milk, and some flour, and you mix them together, and then you set it on your counter for five days. Now, that might raise your eyebrows a little bit. You usually don't leave milk out on the counter, but it's part of the process of creating a fermentation. That's what yeast does to create the rising effect within dough as it, it ferments. After five days, you're to add some of those same ingredients back into that, that starter, mix it together really well, and then you pull a portion of it out to remain as a starter. And then the rest of it, you mix in with the other ingredients which will make your bread. Now that starter that you saved will then go on to be used to make another starter loaf. 
and again and again and again. But you might notice that a little bit of the original starter, no matter how many times you do this, continues to make an impact on that dough. It continues on and on and on, which you might think is a little bit of a health concern. And yes, it actually is. But this kind of bread making is a common practice throughout the world. And it's how the Israelites made their common bread that they would use normally. But you can imagine it creates a bit of a concern as a small portion of the old dough is continually being cycled through each new loaf. It can eventually lead to spoiling, to contamination, and to other health concerns. Now remember how I mentioned in Exodus 12, the Israelites have been told to completely take the yeast out of their homes in preparation for the Passover, right? See, there are two things in play here. Yes, yeast was symbolic of sin, but also in play here is the very clear idea that the Israelites were to start over again. They were not allowed to let the culture that they were being saved out of continue to have a bearing on the people that God was making them to be as he rescued them from that and brought them into first a wilderness and then eventually into the promised land. The Israelites would use those kinds of doughs, those kind of starters, all year. They would keep a small bit from the last yeasted loaf and add to it. But when the Passover came, they were to cut that tradition and start a new unyeasted loaf each year during that Passover festival, untouched by the contents of the old loaf. So in a way that was not just a symbol, symbolic of the yeast itself, but of starting new, of cutting off what was old and beginning again. So in releasing the, the Israelites from their Egyptian captors, Moses was bringing them out of what they had become and bringing them to something brand new, a place of promise where they would have a land of their own, a land flowing with milk and honey, but also a land where they could be set apart for the glory of God. The Exodus is not just a story of God saving Israel from the bullies in Egypt. The Exodus is a story of God saving His people from their sin and making them a new people, redeemed from their old ways of life. See, the oppression of the Israelites didn't just involve hard labor. They were also very exposed to this sinful culture and the practices of the Egyptians, whether it be their idols and their false gods, whether it be their desire for more and their greed, whether it be their diet and, and the, the ways that they ate. You might remember in the wilderness that they complained almost immediately against Moses and say, oh, that we could be back in Egypt again so that we could eat leeks and have quail. That was a culture that they had become familiar with but how much of a tragedy would it be for them to go back into slavery just so that they could get some of the culture that they were missing? So removing Israel from Egypt not only solved their slavery, it also cleansed them of the pagan lifestyle and worldview that they had become accustomed to. Now, if you think about the way that the Israelites treated worship throughout the course of the Old Testament, particularly how they cared for the well-being of the temple. You might remember several instances where it became necessary to cleanse the temple so that the worship of God would not be defiled. We see it in 2 Chronicles 29.5. We see it when Josiah, uh, who becomes king as a very young boy, realizes that the temple's in disarray and he has the temple cleaned out and it is there that they find the scrolls which contain Deuteronomy, the law of God again, a law which they had been ignoring. We see it in Ezra chapter 6. After the exiles under the Babylonians first and then the Medes and the Persians were allowed to come back into their holy land, they were given the chance to rebuild their temple. But before they could use that temple rightly, Ezra consecrates it. He sets it apart as holy and clean unto God. And then we see it again in the New Testament. Two separate occasions where Jesus comes into the temple in Jerusalem. And he turns over the tables of the money changers and those who were swindling Israel out of their money because he refused to allow God's house to be something other than a house of prayer. Christ was determined that his house would not be a house of commerce, but it would be a house of prayer. And so we see this pattern again and again. Now there is no physical temple for us to cleanse. You might remember in 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17, which we spoke of last week, the people of the church represent the temple now. 
The Holy Spirit dwells within us. So in what ways does sin pervade the church, the temple, God's people, when we refuse to deal with sin in a biblical way? First of all, unaddressed sin gets absorbed by the people of God. It is always a little surprising to me when I turn on the TV and I watch an older movie from like the 70s or the 80s, and you watch people sitting in a restaurant just smoking cigarettes or riding on a plane, and they, and they strike up a, a cigar or a cigarette, and they're smoking on the plane. That kind of shocks me because we don't see that anymore. We haven't for several decades, at least here in California. But growing up as a kid, I, I grew up among smokers. And so it was often slightly embarrassing for me when I would go to school and my clothes would smell of smoke, even though I didn't smoke as a kid, but I was around it. The smell of it got on my clothes and followed me where I went. When the church allows sin to dwell, protected among its people, when it is not rooted out and confronted, when it is not addressed with Scripture, then the people of God begin to smell like that sin. They begin to absorb a sense of the guilt of that sin themselves. We cannot be ignorant to the effect that sin can have on us when we're in regular close proximity to it. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And when we're dealing with church discipline, we're dealing specifically with real covenantal companionship. We're dealing with those who have joined to the church in a meaningful way, in a way of promise. That they have said, we believe what you believe, and we want to walk alongside you as we minister together in the same commitment to Scripture, in the same vision of what God has brought us together as a church to do as we fulfill the Great Commission. Last week, you might remember our closing comments where we spoke about how we need, as believers, to still be shocked by sin. It shouldn't be something that we become so accustomed to that it becomes normal around us, that we we don't even flinch at it. Now, the solution to this is not to try to design some Christian utopia. There's no such thing here on earth. There never has been a Christian utopia since the garden was defiled. We, We don't need to separate ourselves out from the world in such a way that we're no earthly good to them. And Paul's going to clarify this in some of the coming verses that we're going to study next week here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. An isolated Christian is a Christian who has abandoned his ministry and his mission. But there is a difference between being a lamp that is gleaming in the dark. There's a difference between that and harboring darkness within a congregation. When we allow sin to dwell within us, the covenant membership of believers then we have let it impact who we are. We begin to absorb that sin ourselves, and it affects not just that isolated sinner, it affects all those who are in covenant with that sinner. Unaddressed sin also gets accommodated in a congregation. So as we allow ourselves to be exposed to sin, our senses become numb to it. We desensitize ourselves, and we lower our defenses to that sin. Though the Word of God has declared that we shall be holy, when we allow unholiness among us and we don't do anything about it in love and in truth, then our holiness begins to fall apart. We make room for this sin that has no place among us. A church will have to experience a lowering of standards as they compromise to accommodate the one who is sinning without repentance. There comes a redefinition of what is holy. The lines get blurred, and then before you know it, they're rapidly moved. And what you thought was right and wrong now seems completely different than what you thought before. A church that won't address sin must contend with the mistake of fearing what man thinks about them. When you harbor sin amongst you in your congregation, then the opinions of the sinner begin to impact the opinions of the saints. And their loud voice will often make those who are trying to do what is right cower instead of standing in the truth. Friends, we have to realize that failure to deal with sin is itself sin. James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So when we neglect church discipline, we almost immediately become sinners ourselves 
And so you see how not only does this sin get absorbed, not only does it get accommodated, it gets multiplied. It adds sin to itself until the whole congregation is on shaky ground. And finally, unaddressed sin leads to conflict in the church. Conflict. When we allow injustice, injustice breeds frustration. It breeds hatred. As sin corrupts the bonds of community, that sin has affected. And when sin goes unchecked and the leadership is not courageous enough to do something about it, the hurt that it causes brings about great frustration, like a wound that won't heal and is constantly festering. And people who lose hope in true justice will set things right. Those who lose hope that true justice will set things right are more liable to pursue justice on their own. And this is very often not done in a godly way. We know that the law of God is on the hearts of man, even if they don't follow it completely. So if we pretend to be a true church, but we don't stand for what is right, then eventually people will begin to realize there's something wrong here. There's something wrong with the way that people are holding to the truth. Ironically, those who choose to ignore sin in hopes of growing a bigger church create an environment where wickedness is tolerated and thrives. And who wants to be a part of a toxic community? So in an effort to make the church big and strong, it's only a matter of time before scandal comes out and people are hurt deeply by sin that is accommodated and, and, and that is absorbed by the people. And, and you see individuals fleeing that church in droves. My heart is always grieved when I witness to someone. I try to share with them about the hope of Jesus Christ. And then they tell me that they don't bother being involved with church anymore because they were with a church at one point, but sin was never dealt with. The people never really handled it properly. They didn't care enough about truth to protect their people from the ugliness of sin. Because sin is contagious, those who take it seriously must commit to cleaning it out. We cannot miss Paul's theology, though, coming through as he clarifies why we must cleanse the church of her sin. Look again at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I think this statement by Paul is brilliantly specific. The apostles determined here to stir up obedient action on behalf of the Corinthians. They must examine themselves. They need to see that they're behaving uh, in a way that is ungodly and that the sin that they're tolerating does not fit with who they are in Christ. They need to desire to be holy as their Savior is holy and to take the necessary action to put sin away from themselves so that their testimony will not be ruined by the presence of evil among them. These things must happen. But Paul is also deliberately careful with the way that he says things here because he doesn't want the Corinthians to get the wrong idea about the part their action plays in their holiness. Paul's not saying... Act obediently so that you will become holy. He's not saying that. Neither is he suggesting that they have somehow lost their salvation and need to earn it back by this radical obedience to church discipline. No. The law and their failure to keep it had already taught them how impossible that scenario would be. They can't earn back something like that. Salvation is something that only comes from the graceful hand of a loving and giving God. Paul declares that these believers need to behave in a holy way, not in order to become holy, but because they have already been made holy. And the reason for that is clear. It is the work of Christ that has made them a holy people. You are all unleavened. You are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The completed work of Jesus Christ has transformed every believer. We could not change ourselves, so Jesus did what we could not do in order to make us what we could not be. Jesus took our sin unto himself. He suffered and died on the cross to pay the due penalty for our sin. And he conquered death by walking out of that tomb on the third day. That work accomplished something. It did not just make it possible for us to be saved or to save ourselves. It saved us. It made us new. Listen to how Paul describes that work 
in his second letter that we have to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, speaking of God the Father, made him, speaking of God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. That doesn't mean that he was ignorant to it, that he he had no idea what was going on. No, it means that he didn't experientially know sin himself. He had never committed sin, not once. And yet God the Father made Jesus to become sin for us. Why? So that in him, in God the Son, we, the church, might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God belonged to Jesus. The sinfulness of Adam belonged to us. But according to God's perfect plan, a double imputation took place. To impute something is to legally credit it from one person to another. If you had a wealthy relative, for example, somebody who had written you legally into their will and then that relative passed away, their estate would be imputed to you on the moment that they died. You would legally come to own what they used to own. It would be given to you. You didn't necessarily do anything to earn that. It came by the will of the one who imputed it to you. That's what imputation means. By His grace, God enacted a great exchange whereby what was wretched in us was imputed to Jesus. It was put on His shoulders. He didn't carry a single of His own sins to the cross because He had none. Christ carried your sin to the cross. He carried my sin to the cross. Our wretchedness was transferred to him so that even though he had fulfilled the law, even though Jesus had never committed sin, our sin being placed on him was enough to make Jesus like a curse to God. He who had never known sin became sin for us that our sin might be legally punished. Do you see the reference to the Passover there in verse 7? Jesus is himself our Passover lamb. Our sin wasn't just brushed under the rug or forgotten about conveniently. It was punished to the full extent of the law on the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he suffered where we should have suffered. He bled where we should have bled. His death was enacted in place of our own death. That's the first imputation. But another one occurred, church. And this should blow our minds. Jesus not only died to rid us of our sins and to set us free from our debt, He died also to grant to us that which did not legally belong to us until He gave it. Jesus imputed His own righteousness to us. All that is lovely, all that is pure, all that is righteous, all that is noble in Jesus Christ, in an instant accredited to the account of God's elect. Can you believe that? He became sin for us, and we became the righteousness of God. When God's Word describes the believer as a new creation, it doesn't mean that you're simply a blank slate again, that you get a do-over. Something much greater than that has happened in your life if you have put your faith on Christ. You have been given a righteousness that is alien to you, a righteousness that comes from God himself. And it is of the utmost quality, and it is undefilable. This is the reality of imputed righteousness. You were once dead in your sin and trespasses, completely incapable of pleasing God. You were not righteous. No matter how you behaved compared to other people, your good deeds were dead to God. You were a sinner. But for those like the Corinthians who had trusted in Jesus Christ, the most important event in human history has redefined you. Since that is now true, friend, a new creation that is washed completely clean and sanctified for holy use has no business acting as a vessel for unrighteousness. It makes no sense to use the body in that way. Cleanse out the old leaven, says Paul, Cleanse out the old sin, for you really are unleavened. You truly have been made new. So this behaving like the world, it is completely unfitting for you. It makes no sense for you to act like you used to act. You've been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do what is right, not in order for you to be right, 
but because you have already been made right by the work of God's Son. Now, we really shouldn't wrap up this passage without taking some time to meditate on the command found in verse 8. Here, Paul, in keeping with the Passover illustration, instructs the Corinthians to celebrate the festival. Celebrate the festival. Celebrate the reality that the sacrificial lamb to replace all sacrificial lambs has done his terrible work. That he has allowed himself to be made a curse and to be made our sin. That he was put to death and rose again so that our sin might be defeated. Have we lost some of the festival enthusiasm that God built into the worship mandates that he gave to his people over the ages? I think that we have. The newness that we have in Christ is not to be settled into with regret. We don't come to church together and say, well, it cost us our freedom, it cost us our fun, but at least we don't, get, we don't have to go to hell now. That is not the attitude that a Christian should have. The kind of mindset that I just described is, is a tragedy of epic proportions if that's all we see, that, oh yes, at least in Christ, we get to avoid judgment, but we have to give up all these other good things. No, What have we given up? We have given up malice. We have given up evil. We have given those things up so that God can bring us into the beauty of sincerity and truth. Let's celebrate that, church. Where would you rather be? Malice and evil or sincerity and truth? Doesn't it give us joy to know that we have been been transformed and made new in Christ? In Exodus 12, it's interesting. Right before the first Passover is instituted, God declares through Moses that the calendar was going to start there now. That that was going to be the first month for them from there on out. That's how new the beginning was for them. It's like all time had changed. And that's why when we look at the Gregorian calendar, we see that when Christ came, when he gave his life, when he, when he came to earth to take on flesh and to overcome our sin according to the will of God and in, and in accordance to the scriptures, that we numbered the days at zero again. We numbered the years at zero again. Because this is something to celebrate. This is something new. And nothing is going to be the same again. Why does Paul bother to battle for the church's purity regarding sin? Because Paul loves the church. And he is grateful for what God has done to make a church for himself. Why has he done it? Because Paul loves the Savior. And he wants the church to be an accurate reflection of the Savior's purity and beauty and goodness. Church discipline is critically important to preserve the good name of Jesus and to help us be what we already are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5 is not the only word we have regarding leaven in the New Testament, regarding yeast. See, there is a twist on this metaphor. In Matthew 13, verse 33, Jesus told them another parable. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Do you see how Christ redeems the metaphor here? Those who are wicked, those who are evil and infested with sin are not the only ones who have the power to have influence on the world that we live in, friends. Hear Paul, or hear the, hear the words of Jesus reconstitute this parable. <coughs> They declare that those who have the truth, those who are loved by the Father, those who are redeemed and new in Christ, can take the joy of that transformation and bring it into the world. The joy of the Lord, the harmony that comes when we together seek righteousness under the direction of His Word, will be appealing to those who see it. (coughs) Sometimes, honestly, for those who don't see it, it isn't appealing. Sometimes those who are lost in the world, they see the joy of the church and they're annoyed by it. They're disgusted by it because they can't relate to it. But other times, the joy of the Lord, God uses it to wake up faith in people who have never experienced something like that. They watch brothers and sisters in Christ loving one another and they say, that's what family should look like. They see people really taking the time to pray for each other's needs to stay in contact with each other. They see the church sacrificially loving one another, using their resources to be a support and a blessing to one another. And they see a a snapshot, they see a picture of God's love for his people. So friends, 
You've no doubt been around fellow believers who have not forgotten the joy of their salvation. They are grateful for what God has given. They are enthusiastic about the glory of God, not just His blessings on earth, but His glory. They want to know more about who He is and what He's like. They rejoice in speaking about Jesus. They want to be near to Him and to know Him more. They're fearless. They're unflappable because they don't have to worry about life anymore. God has a plan for His people. And when you see Christ alive in brothers and sisters like that, it can wake you up. It can remind you who you've been made to be. So get some of that leaven on you, friends. Let the light of Christ shine in your life and expect the Lord to make that life carry a real impact into the world around you. Let the victory of God's salvation in your life shine light and joy to those that you witness to. May God's church remain pure so that our testimony can be bright. Bow with me as we close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. We are reminded again and again through the teachings of Paul and literally all of the scripture that salvation is not the work of our own hands, that if we were responsible for our, our, our place among you, that we would never be able to draw near to you like we desire to. Father, it is only because of the work of Christ that we are made new, but having been made new, God, we must expect you to be doing a good work in our lives. We cannot expect sin to have power over us in such a way that, that we can't overcome it. You are a victorious God, and you will work your change in us in your timing. So give us patience, Lord, for those who have been battling sin for a long time. I pray, God, that you would not let them give up, that they would come continually to the cross with repentant hearts, with humble hearts, ready to receive more of your strength and your power so that they can overcome what they could never defeat on their own. I pray, Lord God, that we would love our brothers and sisters to repentance, that church discipline would not just be an excuse to get rid of people that aren't like us. No, but rather it would be used for the means that you have given it, that God's church might be rid of sin itself. Help us, Lord God, to desire truth and to know that there is no true love apart from truth. Thank you, God, for all that you are for us. We praise you. And we ask that you would give us your strength and confidence as we carry these commands into the world obediently. And we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. And may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole body, soul, and spirit be kept blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Go in peace, church. And we hope to see you again real soon.